0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home for me, you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in toronto so i'm really proud of leon for putting his money where his mouth is completing that accessible washroom and making equal access for everyone so go on down to 3456 young street Harry tarantula and tell them aaron sent you hey fan people if you've been listening to this podcast for a while you know i'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee it's because i love coffee I do my French press every morning. I do the pour over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee. BAMCoffee.ca Their roaster Aaron is Canadian. He's from Saskatchewan. And he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug. I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee and all you got to pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I'm your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Uh, don't forget to follow us on all social media, at SpeechBubblePod. Please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Don't forget to rate and review our show. It always helps people find us. And uh, with me today, we have one of our only returning guests. Yeah. <laughs> does no one else want to return i don't know we wow. have we have one other returning guest but you're like the second who's ever come back who was the first uh shane heron and okay. chris Yao. all
1: right all yeah right. you know them yeah yeah i mean more know of them right yeah. okay cool yeah. so
0: you've already heard his voice you know him he's the writer behind uh fantastic four x-men And uh, he draws Sex Criminals with Matt Fraction. He's also writing Daredevil currently. Uh, He did a little run on Invaders. He won an Eisner for his issue of Peter Parker: Spectacular Spider-Man. He's done other things for Marvel, like Howard the Duck. I mean, probably one of the top three writers working for the company right now.
1: Who are the other two? You tell me who
0: the fuck the other two are. Can
1: I swear on this? I mean, yeah. You tell me who the fuck the other two are. I
0: would say <laughs> Al Ewing and Jonathan yeah. Hickman. Yeah. All right. Probably. All right. Yeah. I accept the that. The British guy. You know, everybody loves the British guys in They're, comics. Both of
1: them are way too smart. I was stuck on a couch between them as they were talking about stuff and I was just like just nodding. Nice. It's one of those conversations where you just nod and like stroke your chin and pretend that you can participate in this. Right. But right. You can't. Totally. Yeah.
0: So yes, please welcome your friend and mine, Chip Zdarsky. Ooh.
1: Yay.
0: <laughs> so, uh, when last we talked, mm-hmm. it was a live episode for the 25th anniversary of Harry Tarantula. Yeah, a lot of pressure. Uh, you followed Jay Torres mm-hmm. on the second day. Also a lot of pressure. Yeah, totally, totally. And... Where we left off was you just started uh, – it it had been announced but hadn't come out yet, I guess. Okay. The first issue on your run for uh, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man. Right. Uh, if you guys want to listen to Chip's early life and find out, you know, how he got started at the National Post, yeah. how basically – Uh, He got the job on Sex Criminals, coming back on a train after a Justin Trudeau boxing match. Mm -hmm. You'll have to listen to that episode because we're just going to cover his work going from Peter Parker Spider-Man on. The boring years. Exactly. Exactly. So busy. So busy. Anyway, so yeah, uh, I guess we'll get into uh, how you got uh, the gig on Spider-Man. It's like the first question.
1: Um, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I kept putting Spider-Man into other things, like immediately, like first issue of Howard the Duck, I put Spider-Man in the issue because I thought that would be my only chance of ever writing the character if they canceled me on issue two. Um, I did a Doctor Strange one shot where I put Spider-Man in as well. Um, yeah. And I think the editor, Nick Lowe, uh, we got along really well and, uh, he just thought, Hey, why not? Why not give this this young whippersnapper 39-year-old a shot at, uh, at writing Spider-Man?
0: And I remember your Spider-Man and Howard the Duck was uh, kind of like a... F- you were like making fun of him? Like What? How uh, dare you? A little bit. Spider-Man is
1: a cultural institution <laughs> I, and I would never bit. stoop to... Bit. So... Yeah. Yeah. So it... it was... I made fun of him, but there was clearly a deep reverence right, for right, him. Of course. Yeah
0: right so was he like your favorite character in in growing up oh yeah okay tell me a little bit about that
1: um like my earliest memories are like my mom making a spider-man halloween costume and i think it was my uh my fifth birthday party with a spider-man cake Um, they hadn't perfected red icing at that point so it was just like pink and light blue but still delicious um yeah yeah my first comics were spider-man comics like yeah, it's it's the kind of it's a weird thing where that character has been a part of my memory as long as my parents. Wow! And yet, um, I can't write stories about my parents for a company and get paid. So, Spider Man, it is. Well, you could cameo your parents in an issue if you wanted to, I guess. I did. Oh, nice! I actually did in, <laughs> uh, in the Spider Man that I drew. Cool. Uh, yeah, I think there were anti Spider Man in it though. I don't know. Maybe it speaks to something in my head. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: So, what
1: attracts
0: you to the character? Like, what? what is like the essence of the, of the character that like speaks to you?
1: I mean, when I was younger, it was the fact that he was completely misunderstood. Cause I think every kid, um, feels that way. Like they're being bullied or, you know, uh, the, the, the girl or the boy that you like in class, doesn't like you, doesn't know you exist. Um, he really tapped into that, I think for a lot of us. Uh, and, uh, we all kind of like secretly hoped we would also be superheroes (laughs) right um yeah and 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 every time he did something good you know something bad would happen and it's just how it feels in life sometimes where you know you're struggling to get ahead and it's one step forward two steps back and uh and yeah so that that spoke to me and you know i think for a lot of people the character speaks to them because um he could be anybody like that mask covers everything um. Uh. So you can imagine yourself as the character a lot more easily than you can, as like Captain America or I don't know the Hulk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. He's 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 the uh he's the everyman, but also he's extremely powerful. Um. And I think that drew a lot of people in, and a lot of us grew up alongside of him, um, just because of reading his adventures when he was a teenager or going into the college years like when i was reading it he was living in the shitty apartment um with you know miss muggins asking for his rent and to me like even as a kid i was like oh that's that's the life I want to have. I want to have that life. It's it's shitty, and so it's attainable. <laughs> like, right, right. You know? It's not like the Fantastic Four. I'm not going to have that life.
0: Yeah. I mean, even his job isn't really a high bar. It's a photographer, and he gets to take pictures of himself. Yeah, and I, I, I <laughs>
1: weirdly enough, I ended up working at a newspaper, basically writing stories about myself. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah. Parallels, for sure. Yeah. So... For the run on Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man, at that point, it was a new book. You were debuting, or I guess it was a returning book, because Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man had launched before in the 90s. But this was a whole new version of it. Mm -hmm. What was your initial pitch uh, for the story?
1: Well, it started with a mandate from editorial. Um, like The reason for the existence of the book was the fact that they knew uh, Spider-Man Homecoming was coming out. And in Amazing Spider-Man, uh, Dan Slott was writing a story where Peter Parker ran an international company, um, which was a cool progression for the character in the comics, but it didn't, um, didn't relate directly to what they were going to be doing in the movies. Right. And so the mandate was, hey, we know he's like kind of a tech CEO over here, but we need adventures with him in New York, a bit more hard luck, kind of like more relatable, um, where you don't really talk about the day job stuff right
0: it sort of brings him back to his roots a little bit yeah
1: um and so so that's kind of the outline that was given to me uh and so uh yeah so it was my mandate and so going in i was like trying to figure out ways to do that while kind of building the stakes over all the issues um because I wanted to start off kind of like light and jokey and fun and kind of get a little bit more serious and darker as we kind of went along, because I think there's a progression in Spider-Man's history of that as well. Um, yeah, yeah, and so I, I planned out like maybe 20 issues, like in my initial pitch to Marvel. I kind of told them what the like three or four arcs were going to be, and, uh, and yeah, a lot of it revolved around kind of taking spider-man off the board a little bit like it's why a chunk of my stories took place in like alternate timelines alternate universes um because i knew dan slot was um writing this epic tale that was going to culminate in him leaving the book and there's a lot happening there and it's weird to have a secondary title contradict that so i i tried my best to not do that with the book but that's good because you don't have to you don't have to be
0: hamstrung by continuity as much, right?
1: You're dancing around it more. Like that is the tricky part. Like, okay. like as an example, um, it was suggested to me that my first villain be the Tinkerer because they knew he was going to pop up in the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And uh, but then the more I thought about, it, I'm like, whoa, Peter Parker is a CEO of a tech company, and Tinkerer is a tech villain, like. Why wouldn't he use the resources at his company? You have to come up with ways to um, sidestep stuff like that. Yeah, or
0: excuses why the company wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. and
1: and telling stories that like are in alternate universes or timelines, uh, it's, it gets a little tricky because a lot of the readers are invested in stories that you know quote unquote matter, and a lot of times when you're screwing around with an alternate universe. It, it, ultimately doesn't feel like it matters right. uh, to the to the narrative of the character. Mm-hmm. So that was that was tricky. I th- I think we pulled it off for the most part, but uh but yeah, yeah, we, I I did it for I think I wrote like 21 issues of it including the annual. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No. Um did you were you involved in the decision making around the artist or do they just give you Adam Kubert and go, "Hey, check it
1: out." Um they gave me Adam Kubert um and I was like you must be joking. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Yeah. Like it's Adam Cooper. I know. He's amazing. He's like, he's a legend. Um, he's not going to want to draw the dumb things. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, I got along super well with Adam. Like his, um, you know, at his core, he's an artist who is constantly striving to be better, which you don't really find a lot. I find with the, um, the older artists, not to say he's old, Adam, you're not old. But the ones who've been in the industry for a long time, yeah, a lot better. of times you'll hit, you'll hit a point in your career where there's a little bit of coasting that happens, where you're just like, you're, you're really good at drawing, so you just, you can just draw it, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to think about it too much. But Adam really thinks about a page. Um, so a lot of his compositions would come back and be like, wow, like, it's just wild that um, the stuff that's in my head gets translated into something 10 times better through Adam, um, yeah, he's great. He's a sweet, genuine human being too.
0: One of the major things that you did, there was a few major things that you did, but one of them uh, was basically, uh, spoilers, uh, J. Jonah Jameson finds out who mm-hmm. Spider-Man is. Yeah. Uh, why did you make that decision? Uh, I like that issue, that confrontation issue. That was one of the best issues of the run. Oh, thanks. But uh, what was the purpose of basically blowing up a bunch of years of Spider-Man continuity. Yeah. So
1: in my initial outline, I had that issue, but the issue didn't end with the identity reveal. It was just them kind of having a big blowout, and then that was it. And uh, as I sat down to write it, I was just like, fuck, like, there needs to be something, a button at the end of this, something to really shake things up. And I started to think about the dynamics between the characters and, uh, and the kind of wrinkles that um Jonah knowing the identity would cause because he found out back in civil war, but the relationship was quite different at that point mm-hmm. um uh since then uh spoilers he forgot again <laughs> <laughs> the uh since then you know, like um Jameson's dad married Aunt may, and you know technically you know Jonah and Peter were brothers for a stretch um yeah. uh and there, you know this wasn't happening in the middle of like civil war and all the unrest that uh, was around that. So I, I, I wanted to come at it from a different angle where Jonah, um, looks to Peter as being more of a son, and that uh, Spider-Man's a fuck up and all he's ever needed was Jonah's help. Right. Like I thought that was an interesting thing. And so I, um, I I, I pitched, uh, I pitched three ideas to my editor. Um, knowing that he would say no to two of them and he would accept the third one, which was the Jonah one. Do you remember what the no was? Uh, yeah. Uh, one of them, I won't say in case I ever use it. Okay. <laughs> but the, uh, um, the second one, uh, I, I said he should date Mary Jane again. Like, why isn't he just dating her? And the editor was like, nope, no way, no way, not a million years. And then, you know, flash forward a year or two later, I'm with Nick Spencer. And he's like, yeah, you know, I pitched on this idea. And like, it took a lot of convincing. But, you know, they they said yes. I'm like, what? <laughs> Thanks for laying the groundwork for
0: me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's what I did. You softened them on the idea. Um,
1: I, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, I, I was throwing that out there. I was like, yeah, like, they're not going to say yes to that. So I didn't. Uh, fight on that point mm-hmm. but um the jameson one i i fought on uh like uh the editor nick Lowe liked the idea um he just wanted me to make sure i had a way out of it so if uh they needed to undo it somehow uh they could mm-hmm.
0: and they needed to have that argument just because
1: i i think they want they know like ultimately the characters um when you change the status quo that much, um, if it doesn't work, then they want to be able to have a reset on that. Right. Um and my I think what I said to him was like, I don't know, like Professor Rex rolls up in a wheelchair and wipes his mind. Like Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It it wasn't it wasn't the kind of change where it would be hard to undo it. Right. If you kill a character, that's a little hard to undo. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, but in that case I think there, there were plenty of opportunities if, if need be, to to change that. But, but it took, which was the most satisfying part. Like, uh, uh, Dan picked up on it in Amazing Spider-Man and used it, which was like kind of my my fanboy dream of doing a thing in a comic right. and then having it reflected in a title like Amazing Spider-Man, um, with art by Stuart Immonen. Like, it made me feel like I kind of wrote those scenes, yeah. which was like so uh, gratifying. And then uh, Nick Spencer um, took the ball and ran with it as well, yeah. and is doing some awesome stuff with Jonah.
0: Well, yeah, now Jonah is like really annoying, <laughs> <I'm>, like <laughs> getting in Spider-Man's way.
1: Yeah, exactly, which is kind of what my ultimate goal was. So like, and I, I talked a lot to Nick about it, and um, Nick's a better writer than I am. So like, I'm glad he's. Uh, He's actually kind of going through with a lot of this stuff and adding elements that I'd never even considered, which is awesome, right.
0: right. And like it seems like it is respectful of like earlier continuity too, because Jonah always wanted to be there's a bunch of issues where he is a hero or he yeah. like, you know, hires this who Matt Gargan, who would eventually become the scorpion. Yeah. But it was all in an effort to be a better hero than Spider-Man. yeah, exactly. so this idea that, like, with my help, uh, Spider Man's gonna be awesome. Mm-hmm. Sort of follows his yeah. There's there's ego. His there's there's ego there, and yeah. he
1: spent uh, like a decade seeing Spider Man fuck up and Peter Parker fuck up, and like wa- figuring out that, you know <laughs> they're both the same guy. Mm-hmm. Of of course he'd want to be the person in charge of them. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Uh, we're gonna be talking about uh, Chip's award-winning final issue of Peter Parker Spider Man, but that's gonna be on the Patreon. So uh, go over there if you want to hear. A deep dive. Gotta on subscribe. That issue.
1: Gotta subscribe. Exactly. Gotta pony
0: up. So then Spider-Man ends, and I think mm-hmm. the next thing I saw you on was uh Marvel 2 and 1. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh Thing and the Human cho- Torch yeah. with uh I think Jim Chung doing the art.
1: Yeah, he did the first uh the first two, three issues, and then he came back for issue six.
0: Right, right, yeah. right. And a lot of people said this is the best Fantastic Four we've ever had for a long time. Well, that's because there was no
1: Fantastic Four for
0: a long there, time. There wasn't any Fantastic Four for a long time. But <laughs> but even the people that were reading it were like, you know, Chip really
1: understands the Fantastic okay, Four. Yeah.
0: He gets the dynamic more than anyone has ever gotten the dynamic. It's modern. It feels fresh.
1: It was, yeah. I it's mean,
0: them going on like a fantastic voyage, mm-hmm. you know, adventuring type stuff. So... For you, like, how do you connect to the Fantastic Four and, uh, were you feeling like I need to enliven this? I need to get it back to a certain place that it was in those early Fantastic Four issues by, uh, Stan and Jack?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I came on board to that via the editor, Tom Brevort, who I never really worked with before. He's been a Marvel for 30 years. He's like the custodian of that place. And, uh... His email to me was basically just um, uh, a close-up image of uh, Ben Grimm with a a two on his belt instead of a four. Mm -hmm. And I was like, are you offering me, like, what is this? What's going (laughs) on? It kind of freaked me out because Fantastic Four, I love that comic when I was younger. Like, I grew up in the John Byrne era. Um, And then um, uh, skipping forward a bit to Walt Simonson. Which is probably my favorite run of comics that Marvel's ever done, like it's super super tight and right. uh, and wild and inventive. Um, so yeah, when when uh, Tom said, "Hey, you know, we want to um, continue with the remaining members, Fantastic Four, uh, and do it as Marvel two in one," like I obviously said yes very quickly, and yeah, you know, reread a lot of uh, FF stuff and. To start thinking about like those kind of big, grand, fantastic voyages, um, but there's also the the emotional element of uh, Johnny and Ben uh, dealing with their grief and their loss.
0: Right, because uh, Sue and Reed and the kids, nobody knows where they are. No, they feel uh, Ben and Johnny feel very abandoned yeah. by them. Yeah, uh, and and each other. Yes,
1: because yeah. uh, up to that point. Um, They were kind of going their own separate ways. right? So there was a lot of great stuff to play with. And also because uh, Bendis was writing Dr. Doom as uh, Iron Man. Yeah. um, That was a whole new dynamic. So uh, getting to kind of use that trio in this was like kind of a writer's dream because they each have their own kind of journeys and their goals and uh, um, so much of the work is done for you when when that's kind of teed up that way. Right. And uh, Jim Chung, like, I don't think I'll ever have a more beautiful issue than like issue one of Marvel Two in One. Like, it's it's so gorgeous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, totally. Because it, it's it's uh, it's Jim Chung drawing it, but it was also Frank Martin coloring it, and uh, those colors are gorgeous. Yeah. And th- those are two guys I would work with in a heartbeat. Um, and I know I know Jim enjoyed it as well, which is gratifying. Why did he leave the book for a period? Just busy. He is slow. <laughs> 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 I, I don't think he'll uh, he'll be upset with me saying that. Like we wanted him for as many issues as we could, but they also wanted to get the book out as quickly as they could, right? And so um, we knew that you know uh, we were going to have to have fill-in artists, but. The amount of time it took, because I was also asking a lot in, in terms of what's being drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I had to write the script for issue six before uh, I wrote the script for issue four, just to give him enough time to do it. Right. While, uh, Valerio Schiedi, um worked on the rest. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to have him on anything. And didn't you work with
0: uh, other Toronto boy like yeah, uh, yeah. raid empisario Ramon Perez yeah R- Ramon Perez
1: came in for the last few issues yeah um, so that was a lot of fun because we've known each other forever right um, yeah he's he's awesome mm-hmm. uh, yeah that was that was a really satisfying book the um, uh, I think it was around issue five or six um, maybe maybe when those were about to come out yeah um, I I got the the notification that Fantastic Four were coming back, and uh, and Dan Slott was gonna be writing it, and so we had a bunch of meetings as to what to do with the book and um, how I could help tee that up. Uh, and Dan let me know what what he had planned, and uh, and yeah, like I ultimately I made the decision to end the book because I didn't think it made a lot of sense to keep going once FF was there, right. It would kind of dilute their homecoming a bit to have another book on the stands. Um, and also, I think in the fan community, people,
0: as the first issues of uh, Fantastic Four were coming out, were feeling like you were doing a better job of writing Fantastic Four than Dan Slott was. The, the, so it's a weird competitive thing that might end up happening if both books are happening at the same time. Yeah,
1: I mean... I I don't think it matters which creators are on which books. Like, right. There will always be a vocal uh, fan contingent that will say that one is better than the other.
0: Yeah. Why aren't they giving the main Fantastic Four title to Zidarski? was something I was hearing all the I'm time. Not,
1: well, I mean, I'm not as good as Dan. <laughs> <laughs> right. Dan just did like an amazing 10-year run on Amazing Spider-Man. Right. Exactly. The Fantastic Four is like number one fan. Like, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I even, I think I, I said to somebody when they asked me this, like, why, why wouldn't I go do Fantastic Four? Like, like, even like, as a cynical marketing person, it doesn't make any sense. Like, you don't take the person who is on the, you know, okay selling book featuring half the Fantastic Four and then the next step is to put them on Fantastic Four. Like, there's no big splash there. Like it depends Dan what Slott, you're thinking of, wh- how you're thinking about it. Dan Slott doing Fantastic Four is a huge deal. Right, me doing Fantastic Four is not a huge deal at that point. Right, because I was just writing half of them. Right, exactly. People already know what to expect. Yeah. But Dan, it was like, well, well what's he going to do? He just spent all this time on Spider-Man. Right, and like, he knocked it out of the gate. Like when he came on that book. Yeah, for sure. Like it's awesome. So, uh, yeah, I think, and, and you know, Dan spent a long time. <laughs> doing Spider-Man and having to deal with Spider-Man fans. Um, and people like, you know, always trying to pit him against other creators in terms of this person should take over, this person should write this. Right.
0: And pe- people felt it was sort of up and down. Like he did really amazing stuff and then he didn't do so many stuff. So everybody has yeah. like a Dan slot I guess, arc that they like and then they don't like other ones. It's kind of yeah, weird. Yeah,
1: of course, because everyone has their own idea of what yeah. a Spider-Man story should be. Right. And there's no getting around that. Right. Um, yeah, it's... I sometimes wonder if I would ever uh, take that job of writing Amazing Spider-Man. Like, it just seems like there's too much pressure and too many negative side effects from that gig. Right. And uh, I think I think you really need to be, you ha- need to have a thick skin. And Dan's developed it over the years, or he's developed coping mechanisms. Nick Spencer obviously has developed coping mechanisms after Secret Empire, like... I think they can just like sit down, focus, and just write and get it out there. And and you have not. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I've never really tested it. Um, like I've always just kind of done books that are not necessarily B level, but um, a little bit under the radar. Maybe I don't know. Mm. Uh, um,
0: you get to play. Like, there's more freedom yeah. if you're not on the main book and everyone's watching you, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: a little bit. And I, I do like that. Uh, I should probably just get over that. And <laughs> if someone offers me fucking Batman or whatever, I should be like, yeah, you know what? I will do that. Well, because, I, like, it sort of leads into my
0: next uh, thing that I want to talk about because just because it's such a really direct lead in. Like, now you're writing uh, Fantastic Four X Men. Yeah. And yeah. everybody <laughs> thought that Jonathan Hickman would take would take that book. Yeah, yeah. Oh, why is Chip Zdarsky writing? Oh, it must be because he did such a great job on Marvel <laughs> 2 and one and everyone loves like his voice when he writes Fantastic Four. He really understands them kind of thing. So I think people interpreted it as, oh, they didn't give him the main Fantastic Four book, so, but they're doing this because they want to give a nod to how the fans really respected uh, Zdarsky's run on uh, they, Marvel 2 and well,
1: one Well... They never want to um, give fans a nod f- for respecting right. anything. Whatever, <laughs> they, yeah. They, I mean, Marvel wants to make money. Right. Um, uh, and they enjoy working with me. hmm So uh, basically, uh, sometime after I was wrapping up Marvel 2 and one um, the editor who also edited Fantastic Four, Tom, um, he took me aside and he was like, hey, we want more FF content from you. Uh, we want to put out more Fantastic Four books now that we're giving it a big push. Um, would you consider doing like a fantastic four, um, quarterly or special or some kind of spinoff thing? I was just like, well, no, not really. Like I said, that was kind of Marvel, what Marvel two and one was. Right. Also, I, I just kind of did that in the same kind of position with Dan on spectacular and amazing Spider-Man. Right. Um, and I just felt like, yeah, they might be, I might be able to do some fun stories, but they would just kind of like disappear you just have that feeling like they just be like um not ones that uh resonate
0: right you're like dan slott's second act all all, all the time sort of thing like his fo- yeah his yeah follow
1: yeah it's not it's not specifically about dan it's more just like well i spent a long time as spectacular trying to tell stories that danced around the continuity of the main title right and, and I, I would have to do that again yeah here. it's weird um but but uh tom knows me and he knows uh i'm a especially after having just done a life story together, he knows I like to solve a problem. And so he just told me, he's like, you just go and you think about it. I'm like, all right. And like within a day, um, I realized, oh, no, I want to do Fantastic Four X-Men. Like there's that story there that was hinted at in, in House of X, Powers of Ten, with uh, Franklin Richards. And um, I'm a huge fan of the old miniseries. The Fantastic Four versus X-Men one. Yeah,
0: because this modern one really draws on that. And you can you can tell there's <laughs> yeah. references to like the Franklin Kitty uh, relationship. Yeah, yeah, from, for sure. Which there. is one
1: of the sweetest relationships in comics. Right. Like um that miniseries was uh wildly touching on every level. And um so I, I had that in my head and I was like oh would they would they go for this? Would they go for like a mini series, kind of playing off of that? Did the
0: editor tell you that it was gonna be Fantastic Four X Men? Like, because uh, at first you just said like, would you like to do like a off Fantastic Four book, or did he tell you that the X Men was gonna no, be No, no, no. He okay. no,
1: there was no X Men okay. in that discussion. Okay. Basically, the editor uh, Tom asked me that uh, during a Marvel Summit, a Marvel okay. retreat, and it was one of the retreats where. Um, Jonathan Hickman was running us all through all, all the X-Men stuff coming up. Right. Which is blowing everyone's minds and everyone's super excited. And uh, and he mentioned the Franklin stuff. And so I knew that was coming up. And uh, I knew I wanted to tell a story about that. So, yeah, I pitched it to Tom. And he's like, all right, well, you know, let's run it by the X-Men office and see. And um, it was a tricky one. It's funny, like, the idea of dancing around continuity because – this was a book being made in, in the Fantastic Four office, so we're running it through the X-Men office, um, but the X-Men stuff is so tightly planned, and we had to get really ahead on it, so we were kind of writing and drawing them before a lot of the books that are coming out now. Right, and doesn't Hickman have to know everything that's going on with X-Men? Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, so everybody? I mean, yeah. Er- everything gets run by him, Yeah, but it's being run by him out of order, Right. because I'm writing issues that won't come out for like seven months kind of thing right. where he might be writing issues that are going to be coming out in two months. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there's a lot of planning coordination and also with, with Dan slot. So uh, I essentially had to make sure the pitch and the outline um, please Dan, please Jonathan, please the various editors um, while telling a decent story, hopefully um, that would also have an outcome to it. Mm-hmm. Like any of them to sign off on what I had planned. Um, and they were really accommodating. There were, there were just a couple of things where they were just like, oh, make sure you do this, or can you make sure to bring this character in? I'm like, yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so it, it's been relatively smooth. I'm, I'm surprised it has been, it actually. Is. I think people are really appreciating it. I think... What
0: they're really liking, besides like this sort of tension between uh, Fantastic Four and the X Men, and the fact that they're both in the same book, I think that people like that the Fantastic Four are sort of uh, the one team that's acknowledging that what the X Men are doing in current continuity is kind of creepy. Like they're yeah. they're creepy and cultish and and weird, and yeah. and I think people are appreciating that because I think when they were reading Powers of Ten and House of X, they're like, wait, what's going on here? This isn't super heroic you know, <laughs> you, know you yeah know? no <laughs> you know they're mean?
1: they're telling a very different kind of story over right. in the x office yeah and i love it like i was talking with a comic creator their day who just like he's like but they're not being superheroes i'm like no but you've got like a thousand other books that are characters being superheroes <laughs> exactly like, this is the one that i read first on the pile every month yeah like uh what, what hickman's doing in x-men like you know i'll, I'll get the pdf sent to me and yeah. Um, I try to read all of them, mm. um, but it takes me longer on some than others. But, like, when when they come in, I immediately look for the X-Men book, and I open it up, and I read it, because I, I'm i just devouring it, what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, I mean, basically, the X-Men are heads of their own mutant island nation. Yeah. And they have, like, sovereignty mm-hmm. and uh, diplomatic immunity and... and uh, have basically decided that they're all just going to live together in harmony on this on this
1: island, mm-hmm. and and they're basically trading with humans, various plants that can aid them in exchange for this um, diplomatic immunity yeah. and recognition. Yeah.
0: The, the flowers of Krakoa, where, where they're living, yeah. uh, basically provide, like, you know, cures for diseases mm-hmm. and, and different things like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but now all of a sudden they have, like, international responsibilities. Like, they yeah. got to go after smugglers. They got to rescue mutants who aren't allowed by their countries to come over to Krakoa. Yeah. So, it's all these, like, national responsibilities that, like presidents and heads of state would have it's yeah really like,
1: cool. you know one of my favorite issues i think it was issue four where it's just like a dinner table conversation between like you know uh magneto and professor x and what was it davos or whatever yeah like, it, it was awesome it was yeah. awesome
0: it and it's also nice to see everybody on the same page like heroes mm-hmm. villain doesn't matter yeah. mutants are fighting for mutant kind and and that's it
1: yeah and and so you know looking at it from outside of Krakoa, like. When uh, when you're giving diplomatic immunity to a man named Mister Sinister and another man named Apocalypse, like <laughs> that looks weird. Yeah, um, those guys are straight up murderers. Right. So uh, so yeah, to to have the Fantastic Four kind of stand in a little bit for um, the rest of the Marvel Universe, or you know, like the original Marvel Universe, really, like they're the template for everything. Right. Um, so to have them just be kind of questioning this on some level, um, that's satisfying. Right, for yeah. sure.
0: And it's and it's super personal because, you know, uh, Sue and Reed's kid is in the middle of it. Yeah. And uh, because he's an Omega-level mutant, uh, Professor X, like, really wants to expedite him coming to Krakoa. So yeah. they have interest there, too. Yeah. It seems like... Everyone, even Doctor Doom has plans for Franklin, and the only one who's really looking out for his interest is is Kitty. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's where we that's where we sit at the moment.
1: Yeah, the uh Yeah, it's not just that Professor X values him for the fact that he's an Omega mutant. He also sees that his powers are disappearing. Right. And, and so that's concerning because right. um if that can happen to him, maybe it could happen to other mutants on the island
0: right especially because professor x has seen various versions of the future that aren't really good for for mutants
1: yeah so yeah it's about helping them
0: yeah one of the other things i like really about that book is the way that you you know there's like these big action pieces and and that sort of thing like like you'd expect in one of those sort of crossover titles but then you also like let it breathe. There's a really good conversation. I think at the first issue, it's like a conversation at a diner between uh, Franklin and Ben. Yeah. Like you have very good sense of like pace and like slowing it down when you need to do like character development it's, and that sort of thing. Is that important?
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's super tricky with a book like this because stupidly, because I wanted to emulate the first miniseries, I made it four issues. Mm-hmm. Like That was my call and it was a bad call because there's so much to get through and so many characters... Um, that have to, like, reach conclusions. Uh, it's real, real tricky. It's, it's one of the hardest books I've ever had to write just in terms of juggling characters and motivations and making sure there's quiet scenes to go with the action. Right. Um, because also, I think, you know, page counts have dropped since the first <laughs> crossover. So I'm doing it with even less space, I think, than the, or, the original. Right, right. Uh, but I think right after Marvel 2 and 1, like
0: before uh, X-Men Fantastic Four came out, uh, that's when I heard that you were going to be working on Daredevil, mm-hmm. right? Like that big ad with the, like, flaming cowl yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, that, and, was, that was me. I drew that one. <laughs> and I think um, the thing that I really like about Daredevil is it's it's completely different than any other Zdarsky book. Like, there's no shtick. It's still the noir, uh, gritty Daredevil that you would expect. It's a completely different yeah. voice for you.
1: Yeah, and th- that was the challenge of it. That's what I really wanted to uh to tackle. They knew I wanted to write Daredevil. Like when um when CB Sobolski took over uh, as editor in chief, one of the first things he did was he he sent emails to all the the contract writers that worked there and he said, "Give me your dream list." Like doesn't matter if it doesn't seem like you'll get the book or whatever or you know, there's a lineup of five people to get it. He just wants to know mm-hmm. um, where our interests lie.
0: Yeah, and CB was new at that point. Or yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. super new.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, and so I sent him my list, and the number one on the list was Daredevil, uh, which I think intrigued him. And uh, I think they had a meeting at Marvel kind of about it um, where when they were discussing it, I think one of the editors maybe said, this is interesting because we don't know what a Chip Zdarsky Daredevil book is going to look like. Right. Like they're all kind of, I think... They're it, thinking comedy or... But maybe not. Like, who knows? Yeah, like, I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's going to be a pervert book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a little pervert. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so that's, I think, why um, he ultimately offered it to me. Just because he knew I love the character and the title and he was curious what that would look like, mm-hmm. which I think is a good... A good pitch for something.
0: Why was it the top of your list?
1: Uh Daredevil's a title where you know, we talked about continuity and dancing between the raindrops and stuff. Um, Daredevil stands apart from all of that. Like it's one of the titles at Marvel where um he's not an Avenger, he's not an a mutant, an X Men, like he's not cosmic. Like he's just Daredevil. Street. And he's street. Um, You know, the closest kind of connections he has are obviously like Defenders and Punisher, but even that, like, um, they don't affect each other that much. So it it, it kind of stands alone and apart. Um, And there have been so many different versions of it over the years that um, you can really kind of do whatever you want with the character. Uh, You know, obviously, like, uh, Brubaker and Bendis went, you know, kind of gritty, realistic, noir, um, uh, cops and robbers kind of stuff. Ben Dis or um, uh, Mark Wade uh, went the opposite direction made him kind of more superheroic you know kind of a bit lighter touch to it yeah Um, and Charles kind of brought him back to kind of New York superhero roots a little bit more right and so uh, you know I've loved the character for decades and one of my favorite runs in comics was uh, Anne Nacenti John B. Jr al williamson Mm -hmm. uh, daredevil just because they tried so many crazy things in that run that really kind of stuck to me when i was younger and so i i knew it's the kind of title where you could do what you want um i also knew it was the kind of title where the runs on that book are either legendary or forgettable and that's a bit of a challenge. Like, right. Well, okay, which one will I be? Yeah, are, <laughs> you you, know? are you
0: going to be you know, next yeah. to Frank
1: Miller? Or? or let's not name another creator. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, um, for a variety of reasons, there have been runs on that book that haven't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I didn't want to be that, but I wanted the challenge of trying to be one of the better ones. So that's why I wanted Daredevil. And when I... I had to pitch it in the room. So basically at a Marvel summit, I had to uh, kind of go around the table and talk about what you're working on. And it was time for me to pitch it. And you can kind of tell everyone in the room is kind of waiting for the jokes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I pitched it dead serious. Like with full gravity of the situation. Um, And I think it it took a few people by surprise. And uh, it was a real hard thing to do because like in the room was like, you know Charles Soul was in there uh Mark Wade was in there Joe Casada like people who really love daredevil yeah totally are there and i had to pitch them what i'm doing and uh and it went well like it, it went well in the sense that half the room really loved it it seemed and half the room had a lot of questions and concerns and um i prefer that over everyone loving it cuz if everyone loves it then it's probably boring.
0: Right. And you, you're not challenged to no. think of other things you can do. Yeah,
1: You don't want to pitch where everyone hates it. Cause that right. usually means it's bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. But if, but if half the room is just like, well, what, how can you do this? Like, what about this? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know about that. Like that's when you kind of know you have something. Right. Did uh, you have answers for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes. I had answers, but um, also they had answers for me too. Right. So, you know, there were a lot of great suggestions in that room, which helped shape it. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, doing those uh those summits are like three days where you're in a room and you're talking about all the titles and uh it's a little relentless and you get real tired, (laughs) you know, talking about Infinity Stones again maybe. Mm -hmm. But um but when an idea hits or somebody gives you a suggestion, like it can really, really help the book. Yeah. Um and and I I got a few of those in a room, which was nice.
0: That's awesome. So for so, what is the challenge of Daredevil? Do you have to sort of maintain that sort of street noir level while doing what you want to do and having your own voice? Because there's a lot of people to follow in Daredevil, yeah. and everybody wants, you know, they see Daredevil a certain way, mm-hmm. and you sort of have to maintain this sort of this sort of street noir kind of backbone, but then you also yeah. have like freedom to do what you want. So how do you balance that?
1: The street noir backbone is flexible, um, as is evident in Ascenti and Wade's runs. Uh, What I want to do with it was um, basically make him as human as I could, because he is the most human, really, Mm -hmm. out of those characters. Yeah, Um, And kind of tackle bigger questions of what why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. What's the result of it? Like, what's the nature of violence and when should violence be used? Mm -hmm. Um, And you you can, you can do that with other characters, but Daredevil's the one I I really feel like you can dig in your heels on it and explore those questions. Like, you know, in in my original outline, you know, I had the, uh, issue eight or issue nine open with um, Matt Murdock and Reed Richards in a park just talking about God and his existence. And I was super jazzed about that scene. Like, you know, while I'm writing issue one, I'm thinking about that scene coming up.
0: Right. Cause Matt Murdock is like the most faithful character in the yeah. whole Marvel universe.
1: And reads the smartest. Mm-hmm. So like, what's that conversation look like? Right. Uh, and, and stuff like that really gets me jazzed. Like I have, there's a conversation in uh, daredevil issue coming up between daredevil and another hero about like, resp- what's your responsibility to people ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's another like big issues kind of thing where it maybe frames characters in a different light that they wouldn't normally be able to do in their own titles because mm-hmm. it might be a but more of a an adult conversation. Right. Uh so that's yeah, that's a lot of fun. Like Yeah, I don't wanna spoil what's coming up, but like it's it's a human book and that's why I like it so much. And I think the
0: human vulnerability, I mean, coming off of the Netflix show for a lot of people, yeah. that really reminded people like how vulnerable Daredevil is. Yeah. So does the Netflix show at all factor in to what you want to do, like knowing that you're following that, and that's people's version of Daredevil that they've just kind of seen, even if they don't collect comics. The,
1: the, the Netflix version is so close to the comic version that – It didn't enter my head, but the parallels are obvious. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think they are that way because the show very faithfully translated a lot of the comic stuff. Right. Um, Like I wanted to be new reader friendly because I think you always do Mm with an issue one. Uh, And I did notice like a lot of new readers came in from the Netflix show. So I'm like, oh, okay, like we must have done something right here. Like the tone must, you know, jive with it. Because um, I'd written a fair amount of it before season three dropped, and then I watched season three. I'm like, oh, they're actually doing stuff that like we're doing a little bit. Um, yeah, just, particularly the character
0: characterization is close. I would, I would, I would say for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like my goal ultimately with kingpin is to like humanize him mm-hmm. and uh, kind of show why he does what he does. And I think the Netflix show, especially in season three, kind of delved into that right. a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a bit easier sometimes on on uh, TV and movies to like get those ideas across, and you have like a really good actor delivering the lines. Yeah, because they they can tell so much with expressions that mm-hmm. sometimes we we lose in comics.
0: Right, but putting him in the. I guess having the responsibility of being a mayor, but then also not being able to shed his villain side, and yeah. like m- one of my favorite scenes is that scene in the washroom, yeah, uh, and that really shows like how he's sort of a prisoner to his to his violent side, and how is he going to get out of literally a washroom with one entrance and exit with a bunch of people downstairs yeah. waiting for him to finish washing his hands. You know,
1: that was another one of those ones where in my original pitch, like. Um, I couldn't wait to get to that issue because right. uh, it's also it's about old money versus new money. It's kind of like it's it's a class division there. Yeah, as well.
0: like sort of like par- how Parasite addresses that. Yeah, recently.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're basically the original Parasite. <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, it was it was awesome. He's he's an awesome character, and like you never you want the reader to empathize and feel for him, but you never want to lose sight of the fact that he's also. A shitty person right and the switch he's, could
0: flip at any time yeah
1: he's still the bad guy in right. the story um just because he's encountered people who are badder than him doesn't negate the fact that he's bad
0: right for
1: sure and yeah. and to be honest because
0: he's human and like not super powered uh maybe he's even more brutal
1: yeah oh yeah 100 you know? percent. because he has to be yeah you know it's it's his history it's um it's 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 who he is it's how he gained power in the first place right mm. uh yeah i love that character a lot like it feels like it's a daredevil and kingpin book Mm -hmm, not just a daredevil book
0: and at the same time that daredevil was announced or maybe like a few months later invaders was Mm -hmm. also announced um and invaders i mean i've always been one of those people who who tried to give invaders a try and it (laughs) it never
1: really lasted i always felt like
0: that book was catering to like an old school comic fan
1: yeah yeah for sure um there've been a lot of attempts over the years to kind of bring them back, make them more relevant. Um and it, it it's it's a bit of a hard sell. The the funny part with that book is uh it came about cuz I kept pitching them Namor. I kept pitching a Namor book to them. Right. Cuz I had these ideas that I wanted to do and uh and uh it never quite grabbed on to anyone there. And then when it finally did, they were like yeah, but Namor won't sell. Like We need to add something to this. And I'm like, oh, well, let's make it, like, Savage Avengers style. Like, we'll make it an Avengers book or whatever. Like, Secret Avengers is back. And they're like, no, no, it doesn't work that way either. Um, And then they're like, invaders, let's do it as invaders. I'm just like, I don't know if that's much better (laughs) anymore Exactly. burning up the sales charts. But, uh, But it was enough to give us the green light, which was great. And so, you know, we did 12 issues. Um, which is frankly six more than I thought we would get. <laughs> right, and you got
0: to do a Namor one shot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It
1: it, it preceded it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was basically like the prequel to um, to Invaders, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's where we got the artist from. To Carlos Magno did that one. Right, and then was eager to do the rest, and then Butch Guys.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So, but like Invaders, you're dealing with like w- the war and post traumatic stress yeah. and. Uh, that whole question of is Namor a good guy or a bad guy and where does that begin and end and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they've, they've had that question kind of ongoing for years. Uh, like I remember when John Burns solved it in, uh, his Namor series back in the day, it was all about like oxygen balance in his brain or whatever. (laughs) And they're like, okay, you're a good guy. Yeah. Um, that's why you were such a dick all those years. And then sometimes nice. Um, which you know, it's a well and good answer, but uh, but uh, yet he still kept going bad and good. So clearly that couldn't have been the answer. Right, <laughs> he would have exactly. just turned on the machine and helped himself. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to go a bit deeper on that. And uh, comics are tricky because I wanted to talk about like PTSD and war without trivializing it. And I f- figured the only way to do that was to really kind of lean into the comic bookness. characters yeah um so it's not just a straightforward trauma dissociative thing that's happening to him um it's an actual thing that professor x screwed his head up right um uh and that was that was fun i always love writing young dickish professor x (laughs) yeah totally totally and then how do you deal with like the sidekicks like Bucky
0: and and that sort of thing because yeah you're writing like a younger like a younger version of
1: him but then there's also like the Winter Soldier aspect yeah the, I mean the flashbacks were great um, partly because it enabled um, the series second artist Butch to uh, to stay on the book uh, because I don't think Butch would be able to do like a full monthly series mm-hmm. um, Carlos probably could he's super fast but. Uh, But I know Butch also really likes the classic Invaders and the World War II stuff. So having him on there was great. And uh, every issue, it afforded me the chance to um, make the modern day story resonate more by giving hints to the characters' past very directly with Mm -hmm. those flashbacks. Um, So, in terms of storytelling, it was a super, it was a boon to be able to kind of play those time periods off of each other. And it's pretty easy to write kind of a young Bucky and a modern Bucky. Young Bucky's just, like, kind of impetuous. Yeah. You know? He's, like, Mm. the kid that thinks he knows everything. Yeah. Now that he's older, he knows he doesn't know everything. Yeah. That's an easy thing to do. Totally. Um, Cap is a little bit trickier because he can't have been perfect always. You kind of have to make him a little flawed in the past. Yeah.
0: And how do you sell the original Human Torch? Because this is, like, a 1930s sort of android. Yeah. Like, in a really rudimentary way. Like, they're literally, like, lighting you know he's he gets lit on fire you know by exposure to the air and stuff it's not it's not yeah (laughs) it's, it's basically that that's basically what it is how do you make that uh translate in in like the modern uh marvel universe
1: yeah i mean again he was kind of the entry point into the series because i play with the fact that he is an android and uh that the man who created him also set a thing in him where to make sure he's human, he must forget things right. as well, um, which forces him to kind of document the invaders' past. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's a fascinating idea. Yeah, idea of like kind of simulated humans and uh, what makes humanity, right. And what it would be like to know you're going to live forever. Mm-hmm. And uh,
0: trying so desperately to be human, even though you don't know, you know that you're not. Yeah. Like he's settled, yeah. he's
1: settled into that. Um, maybe too much. So like, it's always been a tricky thing. The fact that there's two human torches running around. Yeah. Two uh, blonde guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. two blonde white guys. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I knew I wanted to kind of, change him up a little bit throughout and which is why I had uh, namor sorry and decapitate him <laughs> right yeah, totally <laughs> and then and then you know give him uh, a temporary or maybe permanent depending on what happens in the future a uh, more robotic body nice. so um it's harder for him to kind of blend in and he has right. to like he has to kind of become more accustomed to the fact that people will view him differently now. which and, and
0: there's, like, a differentiation between him and the uh, Human Torch. Yeah,
1: yeah, genre. exactly. Oh. Um, like, I, even still, like, you know, I started that series with, um, you know, Cap, Namor, Bucky, and uh, that original Human Torch, and still, like, Invaders fans are like, what about Toro? Bring Toro in. I'm like, man, it is confusing enough that there are two Human Torches, and you want me to bring in just another... F- on fire character yeah (laughs) yeah uh which i eventually did like the the idea was to end with uh, spitfire and toro as part of the team as well Mm -hmm. um yeah i'm glad we got the 12 issues like it feels like a a complete story Mm -hmm. um and then
0: one of my favorite i guess complete stories of the year uh was spider-man life story yeah uh just because i can't believe Nobody had thought of the idea before, mm. or nobody got to do it before. Oh. This whole idea of, you know, Man aging in real time, and every issue is like a decade of, uh, you know, go- takes place in a
1: decade of his life. Well, people people had thought of it before. hundred okay. percent. The um, you know, the one that actually made it to to market was uh, Generations, which was the Superman DC or Superman Batman one that DC did. Right, right. Which kind of kind of tied in Golden Age, Silver Age, yeah. Modern um as the same characters as the age yeah um which i wasn't even thinking of when i pitched this but people quickly reminded me and they kind <laughs> of do announced. that in new frontier
0: as well because they treat it they treat history yeah. as happening yeah as, like, exactly you know
1: um and and also like when i pitched it to again it was tom Brevort, um he he told me like i've had this idea for a long time a lot of people have had this idea for a long time but you know there's a difference between having the idea and making it work. Like, mm-hmm. how do we make this work?
0: So, why did you pitch it? Did you know that people had tried, or did you always wanted to do it? I, I
1: I didn't know it had been uh, pitched before or attempted, but um, but I had like I had kind of a big story about the Marvel universe, um, taking place over real time. Um, and in my head, it was like a twelve issue kind of maxi series. And when I pitched it to Tom, Tom was like. Uh, this is great, like, I get it. People have tried this before, but you're running into the problem that people have run into, which is there's no focus. originally my focus in the title was, was going to be on Reed Richards and uh, Logan. Um, Logan, because he doesn't really age. So having him kind of go through uh, the decades kind of made sense to me Mm -hmm. as kind of the main character. And Reed Richards... um, for other narrative reasons but uh but but Tom came back to me and said you should make this Spider-Man like you've written Spider-Man Spider-Man's a good entry point character um and uh and we know the touchstones right. and I, people
0: know that you know the character really really well
1: yeah and he's also the character that um aged yeah like at least up until he turned like 28 or whatever mm-hmm. so you actually have the opportunity to have him mm-hmm. like Age like he did in the comics, and then all of a sudden keep going. So right. it really highlights what makes the book different. Um, and Tom is right, uh, more right than he can ever know, because you know we did that in six issues, one f- for decade, and it was such a hard job getting everything <laughs> into those issues. Like I kept thinking, like, what if I had gone through with this Marvel Universe idea? Like I would have been screwed. It, yeah, like, twelve issues wouldn't have been able to cover it. Like, too it many characters, too much history, way everything. too much, yeah. way too much. Um, so Tom was correct in that. And it took us a long time to break down how we were going to do this. Yeah, because it's not just Spider-Man aging in real time. It's
0: no. how do I get the touchstones that everyone remembers and make them make sense yeah. in a, in a real-time context.
1: Yeah, like I had, I had several timelines kind of drawn out. Um, one was real-world events. When they would take place, one was um, character ages based on their initial publication appearances mm. um, just to keep track of who's what age at what point. And uh, the third one was Spider-Man events. When when did all these happen in the titles and what years? Because I really wanted to like make sure they were as close to the timeline that we know was possible. Uh, yeah, so besides those timelines, having to figure out what the overall narrative was, what the narrative for each issue was going to be, uh, how they tied in together, where characters would tie in and come back. like It was a lot of planning. And I don't think I could have done it with any other editor than Tom Brevoort because he knows that character really well, but he also knows the history of all this stuff. And he's he's really good at giving story notes.
0: So when you're stuck, is he giving you suggestions? Like, why don't you yeah. do this instead of this? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Um,
1: You know, the initial kind of email thread, you know, sometimes you're going back and forth with somebody and, like, you start changing colors to keep track of who's who Mm -hmm. and, you know, who said what. Um, Ours is just, like, massive. Just this long thing where um, I'd pitch him a thing and be like, eh, maybe, but if he did this, then you could do that. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Like, he's a great editor because um, he doesn't just shoot a thing down. He'll usually have a good reason for it and then... He'll give you possibly a solution. Right. And if you don't accept that, and if you have a different idea, he just, he goes, all right, go for it. Like, he's there to give you the advice, but, you know, your name's going to be on the book. You're the one that's going to suffer if it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, he was, he was super helpful in that title.
0: One of the really deft things that you guys did, um, you were able to, put touchstones together in the same context in a really interesting way. Like yeah. you have the you have the Miles Morales thing with the Craven the Hunter black costume thing Superior, coming back. Yeah. And Superior yeah. all sort of addressed within the same context of what's happening in what is essentially an original story. Too. Yeah,
1: and in and, and that last issue... Um, the sneakiest one was Spider-Verse. Right. Because the Spider-Verse took place in in his head. Right. Like, with all the different versions of himself yeah. over the years. Like, like I still wanted to, like, shout out stuff like that. Like, knowing that I wouldn't be able to tell a story and also have it be a Spider-Verse story. Right. I like, was like, well, it's such an important um, part of that decade. Like, you have to, Yeah. Oh, uh, it was hard <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you Did you get the feedback some that I got? Like a lot of people were saying, like with especially with like the Craven's last hunt nod, like they should have just done that. They should have had Craven be venom. Uh, in the like in the original oh, in the original yeah. run, like a lot of people <laughs> were like, "Wow, that's such a good idea! Why didn't they do that in the in the first place?" It would have solved a lot of problems. I never
1: even yeah, yeah. No one no one's mentioned that to me. That's no. that's that's pretty fun. So, yeah, I, I was. I really wanted that cray uh, venom, to be a, a nice reveal in issue six, and mm-hmm. I think they put out like the variant that Paul Pope did, which was just that character. Right. Like I'm like fuck. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so good. So so good. So. But would you ever do it again? It sounds like it was an exhausting, labor-intensive process.
1: Yeah, I mean, never, uh, never say never. But uh, coming off of that, like Marvel was interested in me doing more of them with different characters, and I said, like, I, I don't know, I don't know if I have it in me. I don't know if I, can, <laughs> if I can actually physically do it. Yeah. And also, I'm interested in seeing other creators do it. Like, yeah. I've, I've recommended other creators tackle like Captain America, or Fantastic Four, or Hulk, like um because as a fan i want to see it. and i want to do the covers too because that was the fun part of that too was that i got to do all the covers um yeah so I'm, I'm i'm quite content with other people attempting to do these yeah
0: they could totally do sort of a real-time storytelling line in the way that like grand design seems to be passed on to yeah. other uh creators
1: yeah, you know, the big question is whether or not they do it as if it's one universe or if they do it as a new thing every time. Um, new thing every time grants you a lot more freedom, but uh, but there's something nice about the connected universe of it all.
0: Right. And you'd still have to, like, you'd still have to tie it to what's happening in actual Marvel continuity, right? Mm-hmm. It couldn't just be, uh, like, this is happening in this separate universe and it's completely different, you know yeah. what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I think Tom pointed out the problem with doing like, like a connected universe of books is the fact that Mark Bagley just designed so many characters, right? That it kind of takes away some of the fun for yeah. the creators. Like, you know, we had Tony Stark in in life story and showcased his Iron Man armors and stuff. So, like, when someone does an Iron Man life story, like they have to follow what we've already done with Tony, right. which it's is just, a little yeah. restrictive. Like people will expect yeah. that coming up. In because that that
0: worked for Spider-Man. Like Spider-Man yeah. needed those supporting characters to be that way for the story, right? But but if you're doing like an Iron Man-centric story or a Captain America-centric story, like yeah. maybe you need characters to
1: be a different way. Yeah, you don't want Tony to be more of a hero than he was right. portrayed in my book. Yeah. Like I love Tony Stark, but he's also a great foil for other characters. Um, if I was writing Iron Man, I wouldn't make him as dickish as I may have written them in in Invaders or Life Story. Right. Right? Um, So, yeah, people should have the freedom to be able to tell a proper Iron Man life story without having to adhere to what we laid out in Spider-Man Life Story.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And... Those cover concepts are really great. Like you get oh. you get sort of a a sense of major historical events of the decade, or at least a nod to things like disco and and uh, the Vietnam War. Yeah,
1: yeah, that yeah. was uh, that was fun because it's the first time in a long time I've kind of tapped into my uh, Sheridan College uh, illustration uh, background, <laughs> nice. coming up with like more graphic conceptual. designy conceptual yeah. things. Yeah. Um, the only tricky part was the nineties. Like what, what do you show for the nineties? Yeah. Like everything else kind of had a thing, right. like Cold War in the eighties yeah. too. But, um, once I hit the nineties, I'm like, well, the stock market did well. Like, <laughs> so I, I kind of lost the plot a little bit. Once we hit that cover, I just focused on the, uh, the clone stuff. But, uh, but yeah, that was i'm I'm super happy, Marvel. Let me do those nice because uh, I really wanted something that stood out in the stands as something different. they let me do it with the trade as well. I got to design the cover for that, which is you know I think helpful for sales and I
0: think it's like super iconic in the sense that every creator sort of wants their own like standalone encapsulated signature thing, yeah. and I think that might be it for you like that might be <laughs> the the thing sign- the that gonna might die be the now.
1: signature you know what I mean yeah, maybe uh. You know, I, I talk to Marvel a lot about doing other things, um, maybe not like life story, but things that kind of stand on their own 'cause I I do think that maybe the market is kind of heading that way too. Right. People like, need a
0: jumping off point. And yeah, it's it's
1: so nice to have a contained story. Yeah. Like and I know that working on sex criminals that uh that it's satisfying knowing there'll be a nice big collection in which you can get the whole story right. at one point, mm-hmm. right? Or at least, you know, this is five parts and that's it. Like, yeah. Um, you know, Matt Fraction once told me that um, writing Marvel comics is, a, is like writing a, a continual second act where um, th- stories don't wrap fully. Right. Yeah. Uh, and having done it for a few years, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's true. Like, even if you have an ending to a story it's not really the ending right yeah
0: someone else will pick it up right yeah like what nick censor is doing with jonah and
1: like that sort of stuff yeah which is part of the charm of of that kind of continuity Mm -hmm. but uh but i i like the idea of kind of done in one Mm -hmm. solid story because i
0: think that's the most intimidating thing about ongoing superhero comics is like okay once i start how do i get off yeah. The train, like, you know you know what I mean? But I, mean, I think...
1: The way I got off the train when I was younger was when they changed artists. Right. Like, you know, I, I think I read Peter David's Hulk up until, I don't want to name which artist, drove me off the book. But eventually, it was like, oh, okay, yeah, no, now I'm off. Yeah. Um, and I think now the danger is books are coming out quickly, uh, artists are taking longer because the demands on them are higher, that uh, there are a lot more opportunities for people to leave books. Right. Because fill-in artists come in issue three, issue four. Right.
0: And now there's like two issues a month instead of one. And and it's always – it's sort of harder now to find out like where one one begins and the other one ends and that sort of stuff. Um, The last thing I want to talk to you about is uh, sex criminals because that's ending. And we sort of started our talk way back in the first uh, episode that we did together. Uh, with sex criminals mm-hmm. which started your whole run uh, with Marvel yeah indirectly yeah exactly <laughs> um so it's ending yeah. um and there's going to be like a little arc i think it's six issues or yeah yeah
1: it's it's like a five issue arc and then there's an epilogue issue right right yeah.
0: but uh obviously you got busy and it's sort right. of just coming back now on the yeah. stands as we're talking so talk to me about deciding to end it and how that happened and when you were coming back to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, the decision happened maybe, I guess say like two years ago, it was at HeroesCon. con. I think I was having breakfast with Matt and, um, I told him like, he's got so many great characters in sex criminals and he keeps introducing more great characters. Cause he's so good at that. Like, especially done in one issues right. that follow like a new character. Um, he's so good at it, but, uh, I, I couldn't envision uh, how they were going to all wrap up. Right. And
0: were you, when you were meeting him at Heroescon, were you on the break already or were you working on it?
1: Um, we, we may have been on a break. And none of these have been like, let's take a break. It's just like either the script's not coming in right. or uh, I'm just noodling around on an issue. Uh, it, it's, it's, usually, it's usually one of us or a combination of us waiting for the other to do a thing. To prompt us to right. do the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, f- I forget what, it, I think, oh man, maybe it's like three years ago now. Because it must have been around issue 20 that we had the conversation. But I basically said to him, like, I can do this till the end of volume six. I said, I think physically, I just, I'm going to run out of steam. We're running out of steam. And I I thought that Matt needed and I needed to know when it was ending in order to work towards an ending.
0: Right. Because drawing, it's so labor intensive. Yeah. Yeah, for Mm. sure.
1: Like I'm doing a page a day, which is great. Uh, I'm writing in the evenings for the most part, Uh, but I'm super tired. (laughs) (laughs) It is a lot of work. Um, And also it's just, it's, I don't, I don't think it's the kind of story that needs to go on for a hundred issues. I think, I think there's a solid story there in the John and Susie relationship. Where you kind of want to see it through to the end. Um, So it felt like six volumes was a pretty good point to get off. And so I, I told Matt kind of where, what number I envisioned, so he knew how to plan. Uh, and that's kind of what started that.
0: Right. Yeah. So now that it's happening, uh, you told me off-air you have, like, two issues to to, yeah. to draw? I told you that off-air. How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> <laughs> totally.
1: Um, yeah, I'm uh, midway through drawing issue 29 right now. Mm-hmm. And we're going to issue 31. So, yeah. Yeah, I got two and a half. Do you feel like... Is it an exhale, like, finally I can
0: I can finish? Is it bittersweet? How do you feel about ending it?
1: I don't have any feelings yet because I'm so busy working on it. And it's funny, my wife asked me the other day, she's like, what are you going to do Like when it's done? Like, like, in terms of, like, how are you going to mark it as a celebration? And I just kept thinking, like, well, I don't know when it's done. Like, is it done when I send in the color files is it done when we proof it and send it to the printer is it done when it comes out is it done when the tray comes out is it done when the hardcover like like i'm still going to be working on it for the next year even if the final issue comes out in like four months or whatever right um so it's it's hard to find a a point where it's like all right we're done drag the files to archive that's it
0: and also like how are you going to (laughs) top the opening issue
1: launch at a sex club well, with bad Fraction getting his nipple pierced. I know, I know, like we, we're talking about it now, like what are we going to do? You know, I told Matt, I like the idea of, um, I guess back in the 80s, like Spielberg and Lucas, whenever one of their movies would be debuting, they would both like go to Hawaii and just like not read the news, not watch TV and just sit on the beach and just like enjoy making love. I don't know what they did, but um, <laughs> Uh, and I like that idea. Like yeah. the day final issue comes out, Matt and I are on like a tropical island, just our bloated dad bods <laughs> drinking coconut juice or whatever. But also
0: too, like now suddenly you have a responsibility to do a community that you developed through the letter daddies. Yeah. So like there's a whole discussion happening that's sort of related to the comic, but like separate and people are telling you all their personal oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. So like it's like you have to wrap that up too. Like, do you haven't? Do you think you have an equal responsibility to
1: that and people who've been writing in and? I mean, everything that kind of stuff. Everything ends, right? Um, and it's funny. Like the past, we just sent issue twenty-eight off to the printer and the letters page. There, there were a couple letters just talking about the end and like what what it meant to them and some people kind of grew up with it a little bit, like. You know, that read it in high school and when they shouldn't have, and they graduated college recently, and like that comic's been with them through some really formative sexual stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's touching. It's really touching. You don't quite get that with Spider Man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, I mean, our responsibility is the responsibility is to us, and it always has been in terms of like creating a story that we like. Mm-hmm um i draw for matt matt writes for me and uh it's touched a lot of people which is super super sweet and uh we're we're conscious of it and you know we never want to do harm to anyone
0: yeah let people down easy sort of
1: yeah yeah and like we're working towards an ending that we hope they'll appreciate and uh and yeah, it'll it'll be the end, and it's a it's a weird, sad thing. And I'm just kind of realizing right now <laughs> as I'm sitting in this podcast. <laughs> oh my god, um, people have gotten married through the comic. People like, have lived and died. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's like, insane. Uh, it's hmm. it's a it's it's a weird thing, and it'll be the biggest thing I'll ever be associated with in my life. Right, I know that. Like, even if I write Spider-Man, Batman, or whatever, like, so many people have written those characters. And it's, it's its own thing. It's owned by a corporation. Right. It's fine. But, like, this was a thing wholly created by Matt and I that that touched an entire group of people. And they met, and they got married through it. And, like, they went through so many things during the comic production uh, that, yeah, yeah, it's wild.
0: Yeah, insane. Well... The answer to what are you going to do next? I mean, there's always CapTara. Yeah, yeah no, I would love CapTara. yeah. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, Kagan and I, we dance around it. We dance around it. Um, I think the last time we really talked about it, because I gave him an issue six script a long time ago, and he got like 10 pages in, and life kind of took over, and now I'm thinking of revisiting it where we kind of condense the rest of the story that we want to tell just so it doesn't loom as large over him. hmm and, uh, and put it out, uh, maybe a series again, maybe it's graphic novels, I don't know, um, yeah, gotta get it done, yeah, That's and he, he seems
0: like he's sort of back in Monthly Comics too. so he's sort of yeah. ready, because he's doing Karate uh, Kid, Karate Kid yeah. so... Maybe it's time. I know, I know. Anyway, when it does come out, where can people follow you to uh, find out?
1: Uh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking social media.
0: I Go know. Go to a comic shop. Talk uh, to somebody. I know. Maybe you'll Jesus. be DC publisher by then. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Hot gossip. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in, Chip. And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. I mean, I won't. Bye. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends.
1: Never Sleeps
0: Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.